The following podcast is brought to you by the Jonas Podcasting Network, found exclusively at wrestlingwithjonas.com. And welcome to the latest episode of the Legends Masterclass series, episode six. And uh, previous guests, previous episodes have included uh, my conversation last year with Marty Jones, uh, Tony St. Clair, Adrian Street with Miss Linda, of course. Uh, I think that was uh, the last interview that he ever conducted. And of course, we've recently uh, lost Adrian Street. Um, this year, I've had uh, Johnny Kidd on the show uh, on the Legends Masterclass episode four, and more recently, uh, Lee Bamba, uh, legendary ring announcer, uh, world of sport ring announcer, and still doing the goods today. But to today, episode six of the Legends Masterclass series brought to you by Wrestling with Johnners. Uh, I've got Mel Sanders, Mel, superstar Mel Sanders. Uh, how, how can I uh, mess up on that? Superstar Mel Sanders, how are you doing, my, my friend? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, um, as I said, I'm living in uh, by the seaside now, so yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm still I'm still training and still running, so yeah, I'm doing okay. Well, well, tell us about that then. Tell us because I mean, you know, you look in uh, fine physical form there, Mal. If you don't mind me saying, so uh, you're still keeping fit, um, not necessarily in the wrestling ring, but I'm guessing just uh, kind of your own routine nowadays. Yeah, a lot of fellas, you know, like footballers, when they they train for what they do, and then you know when they retire or when they pack up, you know, they just let it, let it all go and stuff but I've always I mean the boys will tell you I've always sort of kept myself in shape and try to keep myself fit. it's not easier I mean I'm 65 now so it's not easier as you get older but um I feel better for it and it sort of brings me to life when I train you know it's uh it's not a substitute for being in front of people and wrestling and getting the buzz but <clears throat> you know bringing it challenges me as well which is good Absolutely. And um, four decades in the business, Mal, four decades. Well, when you started uh, in your early 20s, back in 77, did you ever expect it to go four decades? No, well, you don't. You see, the thing is, in those days, you were having such a good time that you thought it was going to last forever. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was around, you know, no disrespect to people who are in the business today. But I was around legends in the business, you know, and uh, it was just a fancy. And I was sort of the baby of everybody. I was the youngest of all. And so they all looked after me. And um, it was just a great time. You know, I was brought in by Mike Marino, as you probably know, who actually died in my car. I don't know if you've delved enough to find out. I was not aware of that, no. Uh, was that on the way back from a show, I'm guessing? Or I'll talk about that later. But, I mean, Mike sort of took me under his wing from the amateur uh, ranks. And um, obviously, I knew a lot of, you know, a lot of fellas from my club turned professional. I am Fist Club Myers, Lee Bronson, Bully Boy, John Hall, the Borg Twins, you know, the, the list is endless. But um, when I got to the programme, sort of Mike took me under his wing. And, um, yeah, and then... That was in 77 and ended up dying in my car on the uh, four years later in 81. Wow. You know, we were, I, I knew he wasn't well because um, 
he phoned me and asked me if I would take him to Folkestone, which wasn't like Mike. I mean, I don't know. Mike Marino was a god in this business, you know, and he should travel everywhere on his own. And I could see he wasn't well. And he was actually due to be on with Big Jim Harris, who became Kamala, you know, in the WWE. Right. Yeah. And I said to Mike, look, you know, you can't go. And long and short of it is, I took him to a hospital. I picked him up on the way back. Uh, he had a fit in the car and he died in my arms on the side of the motorway. Wow. What a story. What a story. Apologies for the dogs. You can probably hear them. They do like to make cameo appearances every so often. <laughs> Little yappy things. Just actually lost two bulldogs in the space of five weeks. Yeah. Which broke my heart. But we've got a puppy now. So um, she's sort of lightening up the house a bit. Oh, it, fantastic. You know, was a god in this business. And, um, yeah. you know, it's and it was such a shock. It, I, it came out later that he had leukemia, but he was only 58, Mike, mm. you know, so full of life, and he was such a great character. And I know it's an old cliche, and I know I'm biased, but they don't make them like Mike anymore. You know, that's mm. that's the old school. We, we will take a, a deep dive into them early days, the late 70s, the 80s, and all the way through. But uh, do, do you still keep in touch with the sport nowadays? Do you still pop and see uh, shows? Do you go to conventions? Do you watch the sport on TV? What's your involvement with wrestling nowadays? Yeah, I don't really have any. I do keep in touch, obviously, with some of my old... Uh... Old ringmates, uh, Lee Bronson. I phone. You know, we all we've been friends for years, so we speak. You know, regular Stevie Gray. Also, we speak uh, regularly. Uh, you know, I still keep in touch with Johnny Kidd, James Mason. Mm -hmm. James told you that we have a um, a meet up. You know, we arrange a, a dinner at Victoria every now and again, and we have a a meet up with all the lads. Um, as far as going to wrestling shows, funny enough, I was asked to one tonight. At Howsham, Steve Barker is running the show there. Right. Um, obviously, I can't go because I'm doing this, but Steve came to see me lunchtime and um, we spent a couple of hours talking about the old days. And uh, yeah, so I don't go really to see wrestling these days. And I was very surprised that AEW, I understand, have sold 88,000 tickets for when. So. Phenomenal, yeah, and and I'll be going to that show. And uh, like I said, I, I went to Wembley when the WWF were in town 31 years ago, SummerSlam '92. So I know it's a different Wembley nowadays, but it should bring back some some memories of when I was there as a 16 year old for SummerSlam '92. And uh, like I say, the WWF was a, a world away from what you used to back in the 70s and the 80s. But um, uh, so I mean. I want to talk to you a bit about your, your last match then, Mal. And uh, it was only six years ago, I understand, in 2017, when Chikara was over on these shores. Uh, and it was a King of Trios match, sort of six-man tag. You were teaming with Danny Boy Collins and uh, James Mason. Um, yeah, that... couldn't, really have, couldn't really have wished for two better friends, two better partners to have had your last match with. That wasn't my last match. My last match on with James Mason at um, Gravesend. But um, the match you're talking about, yeah, they had to persuade me a little bit to do it. because Really? Yeah, because, you know, I'm old school. And, um, you know, this uh, new, it's a different, 
it's a different ball game to me anyway. But anyway, they persuaded me to do it. And, and uh, it was a great day out and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was great to be with James and Danny. And we, I think um, there's some, there's photographs. We were, we're laughing our heads off and laughing and joking. And um, we just had a great time. I mean, James is a, a great professional and Danny as well, you know, and um, yeah, it was just a great day. Stevie Gray came with us and um, just for a day out and it, it was a great time. But yeah. when I first came into business, every day was like that. To me. You know, you were spent, I was with those big, big stars every day and I was very, very lucky. You know, I was very, very lucky. I had some great teachers and, uh, you know, I don't know if people are still around. So sort of, it's a different style now, John, as anyway. It's a different yeah. style. They're doing a different ball game and more sort of, more um, acrobatic, shall I say. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I've had uh, Johnny Kidd and James Mason and various others on the show. And, uh, I mean, we, we kind of spoke about how the traditional British style seems to be back in vogue again to be honest with you and there's more people around the world that are kind of finding out about world of sport watching the old british acts action and, and kind of picking up more traditional styles so i think it has it it comes in waves i think it's having a bit of a resurgence uh so that there's a bit more variety on shows but uh yeah That's I, I, with on. william with dan with william regal when he yeah. went states, he always emulated the old world of sport days and, and always kept it right and, which was great you know and Dave Taylor as well and, and Dave Finley obviously who went there and they always kept it right because don't forget in the old days before WWF evolved they used mm. to watch used to watch all our tapes from here you know Pete Roberts and Terry Raj and everybody that's how they first started out it was by watching our tapes and that you know I mean they still had their own sort of regional shows, but Vince McMahon, that's how they started. And whenever we meet any American wrestlers, whenever we, if, when I, when I used to go to shows, they always treat you with the greatest respect, which is all we ask for. That's all we ask for. And, that, and they're fantastic. They treat you, you know, like you are someone like they are, you know, they treat you with great respect, which is, which is great. Yeah. Do you miss, um, getting into the ring and, uh, yeah. Doing what you did best for forty years, do you miss uh, the action and the the atmosphere, the crowd, and the the smell of the the deep heat and all the grappling? Yeah, what I miss as well is the is the camaraderie in the dressing yeah. room. I mean, I mentioned I did say to Johnny Kidd once because he said if if he's going to write a book, he's going to put this quote in it. I did say that wrestling got in the way sometimes because we were having such a great time talking to everybody in the dressing room and doing what we do and that wrestling actually got in the way sometimes i had to put my boots on because i had them big guy boots that took me half an hour <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant take us back to when you were younger then mal and uh what, what was going on in your life when you were a teenager were you academic were you sporty what sort of a, a kid were you growing up well i was quite a good footballer and um you know i played for the for the county and stuff and I went to Crystal Palace for a trial. This is how it's, this is how the wrestling job started. And I went to Crystal Palace for a trial, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you're good enough, but you're not, you're not big enough. You're not, you know, because I was always very like slim, man. So um, I started. I bought some weights and started weight training. And my parents 
were great wrestling fans. They used to go to Fairfield Halls in Croydon, which was a, a big venue for wrestling and the, and the Albert Hall. And I just went and I saw these people and I thought to myself, God almighty, that's fantastic. And in those days, the Albert Hall would be sold out. Croydon yeah. would be sold. And, um, it was, uh, and it was just a fantastic spectacle. And I thought to myself, maybe this is for me. So, I saw, that's when I was sort of 14, 15. So I joined an amateur wrestling club, uh, which was totally different to the pro game. But yeah, that's the real stuff. And um, I was there for four years. And best, great four years, best four years of my life, because it taught me respect. It taught me never to take anybody at face value. And in those days, it was very difficult to get in the wrestling business. You know, no, I'm not, no disrespect to what's happening now. Yeah. But in those days, it was like having a trial for Manchester United. You know, it was difficult to get in. And them having known you've done a bit of, of amateur was a great benefactor in that. So, um, and I respect anybody that has done anything. Yeah. Uh, and go on, please carry on. I got to know people like Lee Bronson and, you know, Clive Myers and, and therefore they sort of got me into the Dal Martins gym for a trial, as it were. And I was there for six months before I even got a wrestling job. And going through hell, they put me on with people like Pete Robert. I mean, this is proper. This is not show wrestling. This is proper wrestling. Yeah. And Pete Roberts, who'd just come back from Japan, a fellow called Lenny Hurst, Dave Bond, these were all consummate professionals, but great amateurs as well. And that was my, you know, first taste of uh, getting roughed up, as it were. But that's what you did in those days. You had to, you had to, you know, last that course before you could get into the business. And, you know, lucky enough, I did. And I was at the right place at the right time. And they liked me. And, and that was it. So, but it, it, was, it was tough. It was tough to get in the business. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you mentioned your training as an amateur gave you a bit of a, an advantage when you kind of went into the pro game. Pro game, uh, and obviously, you had the, the fundamentals down, um, and, and you lasted the course as well. And uh, I've, I've listened to many top pros from that sort of era said that you know it, it was a, a rough, tough sport, a rough, tough business. But if you could, you know, get through it, then you know you were respected by your peers and uh, generally did very well. Um, and you mentioned Dale Martin's obviously part of joint promotion and you, you were straight in with uh, Dale Martin and joint promotion show from the off really, weren't you, Mel? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, and I was at the sort of right place at the right time. I mean, um, you know, I think Mick, Mick liked me as well, McManus, who was the matchmaker at those times. And um, yeah, as you, yeah, I, w I was lucky, you know, I was on TV after a few weeks and then, oh lucky enough to be given the belt, you know, like a year later or so. So, I, I you know, I have no um, disillusions that, you know, I was some fantastic being that, you know, I had to do with this. I was in the right place at the right time and I was respectful. Um, and you get on if you're like that, you know. If you if you go start sort of thinking you know that know everything but these fellas these fellas could have ripped me head off you know you, these these they're tough fellas you know and um 
people like Peter Zakash and Zoli Boshik, you know, they Peter Zakash wrestled for Hungary Olympic Games, you know, they were these fellows were the real deal. So you I can remember uh, it wasn't in my time, but just before my time. If you was a lightweight, you couldn't get changed in the heavyweight's dressing room. That's what it was like. Interesting. You know? Very interesting. I haven't heard that before. That's really, really interesting. And um, you mentioned about uh, the Royal Albert Hall and various venues selling out to packed crowds uh, in that era where wrestling was was just, yeah, it was so, so popular in the 70s and the 80s. But, uh, I mean... You made several appearances at the Royal Albert Hall, didn't you? And uh, even very early on in your career uh, that you were performing at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, that must have been a bit of a thrill for you, but maybe slightly daunting at the same time? Yeah, it was because, and I can remember the first time I was there, uh, I've mentioned Lee Bronson. His dad was a wrestler called Norman the Butcher. And Norman would always be there in a suit and tie dressed up and he'd walk you into the ring. And... Uh, this particular night in those days it used to go in complete darkness and a spotlight would just come onto the steps where you're walking up from the you know the um, yeah. level and when you walk you're walking out in front of five thousand people when i was doing that when i was like 18 on with mick mcmanus top of the bill and it's you know yeah it's you it's a bit surreal really at the time but when you get in the ring you just treat it as another match but yeah and in those days, of course, people could smoke, so you couldn't really see. It was like a fog. <laughs> with the, you couldn't really see because there was so much smoke and, you know, light. But, yeah, fantastic experience, you know, just fantastic. Yeah. One night that really kind of stands out when I was doing my research and uh, in the Royal Albert Hall, once again, uh, November the 23rd, 1978. Uh, and I think you wrestled two matches on that show. And it, it was quite common for the wrestlers, for the talent to wrestle multiple matches on a show. But I think you wrestled Mark Rollable Rocco earlier on in the evening. And then later on, you was involved in a six man. Uh, you were tagging with Big Daddy, uh, Johnny uh, Sheslav uh, against uh, Bruiser Muir. Rock, Mark Rocco again and Sid Cooper. Do you remember that outing? Because you probably would have been in, in the business maybe a year at the Royal Albert Hall, wrestling Rollable Rocco, two matches in one night. Uh, does that stand out to you? That sounds like a pretty special evening. Let me just tell you something, Jonas. We were talking, this is what a privileged life I've had. We were talking the other day and Steve Gray said to me, do you remember that night we were at Croydon, me, you and Big Daddy against Rocco and Rocky Moran and we walked from instead of coming out at the side of the hall we walked from the back of the hall which was a long walk to the ring with a spotlight on us and it took us 10 minutes to get in the ring he said to me do you remember and I said no I don't but that's not because I've got Alzheimer's that's because I had such a great time that even that didn't stand out in my memory as being a fantastic night because I had so many fantastic nights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, uh, please carry on. That, that's how great it was in those days. You know, people say to me, Oh, do you remember that? And you remember, I mean, I do remember certain things, but you know, it was just one day after the other was just like Disneyland, you know, yeah. people, people ask me where I lived. I say, I lived in Disneyland for 50 years. Now I lived just outside it. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, who gave you, or when did you first get the nickname Superstar Sanders, Superstar Mel Sanders? Who who gave you that? I think it was Max Crabtree when um, 
they gave me the belt. Uh, they gave me that. You know, Max was a great. Uh, he was a great promoter, and he was. You know, he's he had a great vision, Max Crabtree. You know, and I liked him. I liked him a lot. We we got on well. A lot of people didn't get on with him. I got on with him well. And I actually I went to see him. Me and Steve went to see him when uh, you know the, the game was all finished. We went up to his farm and uh, he actually got quite tearful when we left because I don't think he used to see many of the boys, you know. But at one time, Max Crabtree was the person that you wanted to work for and he was the main man, you know. But yeah. I think it was gave me that name. I think it was Max Crabtree. Yeah. And you mentioned it just a minute ago, Mal, and it's the, uh, the, the European Middleweight Championship. And uh, I think when people... Uh, associate you with any championship. I think that one sticks out, the European middleweight. And I think you won it a couple of times, didn't you? Uh, back in, I think, 79, then again in about 86. But w- w- thinking back to that that belt in particular, that championship, w- w- what did it mean to you uh, to be a champion of that prestigious title? It was, yeah, it was fantastic being so young. And yeah. um, at the time, Brian Maxine was the British middleweight champion. So we used to do G's and, you know, and rematches everywhere. And uh, Brian Maxine was a fantastic villain in this business. Not so great. And didn't get so so great as a blue eye. But he was a fantastic villain and took fantastic bumps. And he used to do a thing where he grabbed the microphone at the end of the match and would scream and shout at everybody and drive them bananas. Fantastic. Um, he, I understand now that he, he's not in great health. He's got uh, a touch of dementia. But uh, in those days, he, he was a big, big star. And um, now these are the people you've got to thank because without people like that, you are nobody. Hmm. You do it on your own. You know, so, and I just, there was just fantastic people around that, I, that taught me. And, you know, I was very, very lucky. Very, very lucky. Absolutely. And uh, one individual I want to talk about in particular, and that's, uh, we mentioned him earlier, Mark Rollable Rocco. And uh, I think you had the privilege of wrestling him, wrestling Mark uh, a few times um, at the Royal Albert Hall, at Wembley Arena and, and various places around the UK. Um, yeah. I, I think he'll go down as a bit of a pioneer of the business for the style that he introduced and made famous all over the world. And I think he, he probably started maybe seven or eight years ahead of you, Mal. But what are your memories of of, uh, of working Mark Rollable Rocco back in the 70s and the 80s? It was a tough night if you was on with Rocco. You knew you were going to get kicked. You knew you were going to get punched. You knew there could be a bit of blood knocking about. But I loved him as a man. He was he was a fa- he was fabulous company. Um, he had a fabulous personality. Uh, you knew that when you were with him anywhere, it was just going to be a laugh from start to finish. In the ring, he was years ahead of his time, and uh, I used to love. I'd have worked with him every night. A lot of people didn't like working with him. A lot of people would say oh he's a bit stiff and you know this that and the other and he's kicked me and and there's actually a story and this is the truth i haven't got a lie there's actually a story that somebody actually retired from the business because they were on morocco and wow yeah because that's the way it was going but that's the way it was with mark you know he he gave it and you know if you gave it back to him then he had to take it that was good but that's what annoys me when people say to me 
oh well you know there's a lot of it's a lot of acting and it's a lot of this and a lot of that i've had 22 stitches in my face and probably as many in my body um so you know if that's acting then something's gone wrong somewhere on the line far but, from uh, it absolutely uh, yeah you if you got kicked by rocco you knew you got kicked by rocco and um and there was a few fellas in the business that were a bit you know like that. but you just that's the way it was if they were like that to you then you know you had to you had to give it back or you had to stand and take it and you know well, this is it, and people like Rollable Rocco and, and various others from your generation that, that they took the sport very seriously, and they didn't want people in the audience or at home to think, oh, you know, he, he's just uh, play fighting, or that didn't really hurt. If you lay it in, it's going to look like it's really going to hurt. So uh, they they believed in realism, didn't they? Of course, and I always used to say to people, uh, you know, I used to lift the ropes up and say, "Well, come in and have a go," and they'd say, "Oh no, you know, you might hurt me." Well, that's the chance you. <laughs> You know, in that, I mean, it's you know, since WWE came out, as it being entertainment. Um, yeah, I mean, it is entertainment, but it's still not easy. You know, I was wrestling then six nights a week, every, every month, every year, for years and years. You know, I, we got Sundays off maybe, even in the, in the summer. Sometimes you didn't get a Sunday off, you know, because you you get your date sheet. A month before so you knew where you were and if you were up north or if you were down south or wherever and if you got a night off you you would i would arrange to go out with friends but then two days before someone would be injured so you'd have to work so you know, I, I never got a day off uh, for years but i wouldn't change it it was absolutely fantastic you mentioned about the date sheet and about the schedule there and i'm guessing that it was a full-time living for you back in the day mel I know. I was working as well. You was I working had, as well. I used to work for the, the G, yeah for the GLC in London for the architects department. I used to be in charge of um, getting all the materials for the education premises, like schools, nurseries, colleges. But I had a very my brother-in-law was my ultimate governor. So if I had to shoot off early, he used to let me do that, and I wouldn't have been able to. There would have been no superstar Mal Sanders if it hadn't have been for Bill Burden. And I tell him that every time I see him. Because those days, when we went to Yarmouth and Weymouth, we used to leave at 12 o'clock because there was no not motorways like that. No, no M25 in the late 70s. So you had to, we had to leave the appropriate time. So we had to meet at Brixton and we would leave for those shows. <clears throat> in our own cars, we could leave in those days from the Midlands, Birmingham, less at four o'clock. Now, you'd have to leave at four o'clock the previous day, probably. Yeah, you would, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, probably a big thing, you know. We was I was on the road for 25, 30 years. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your, your wrestling style now, because I know that we've described it as a, a traditional British style. And uh, when you think of that, you think of the likes of uh, Johnny Saint and uh, you know, maybe Johnny Kidd and various others that were that were very, very smooth and technical in the ring. Um, yourself, I mean, I've seen a number of your matches in preparation for this, a whole ton of matches, actually, Mal. And uh, you, you struck me as being quite a fast paced wrestler. There was a lot of pace. There was a lot of you know speed in your game as well as the technical side as well and uh um you know that couldn't be said for all of the stars back then but yeah you you certainly had the the, the pace around the ring um as well as the, the technical chops as well 
Mm, I, was, I was younger then. Let me just clear something up before we carry on. Mm. Johnny Kidd's name, Mr. Smooth, was given to him by me. Okay. <laughs> I could pull a tablecloth out of his pocket and put it on the table and the knives and forks and a candelabra would already be on there alike. That's <laughs> Getting back to the wrestling. Yeah, well, in those days, when you're young, I was, I've always been quite athletic, so... And I was on with people, Stevie Gray, they were all fast movers. Rocco was a fantastic mover. Yeah, you know, as you get older, what I did when I'd been in the game 10, 15 years, I decided that um, it was more fun to be a villain. So I sort of changed my, what can I say, not the persona, but my, my image, I suppose. I sort of started to lean a little bit. A fantastic person who used to do that was Terry Rudge. He could, uh, Terry, have you heard of Terry Rudge, John? Absolutely. Terry Rudge could you know start off wrestling and he wouldn't he just about just lean on people but the crowd would be going bananas you know we just had I, I would never be in his class but you know uh, and then they they took me as a villain so i enhanced that you know, i like that because you know, it's all about being a goody goody but you know it's more it was more fun for me being a villain <laughs> You do hear that an awful lot, you really do. But I mean, my very next subject was going to be about how popular you were with the fans, especially in the early days. I think a lot of the matches I saw of yours was uh, probably from the early 80s. I think, uh, yeah. um, I can't remember the name of the guy now, but uh, John English maybe. But the crowd were just so, so raucous for you, especially as the Blue Eye. But I mean, yeah, they were. They were fantastic. It was a different sort of crowd then. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to um, Steve Barker today, and it's a, it's a different sort of crowd. You know, people would go in bow ties in those days to the Albert Hall, and in suits, you know, with ties and stuff on. You know, that's the sort of people that went. Um, it's more family orientated now. The shows are more sort of family orientated. But yeah, I well. And then they made me, they did give me a fan club and we had a couple of hundred people in it. And the lady used to run it from Cheltenham. And um, yeah, just, you know, it was a, it was good with the day all had fans, you know, it was a, it, it was a good time. It was a great time to be in the business then. You know, yeah. it was a, they called it the golden era. It probably was in those days because I was just saying today as well to him, you know, we used to get trips abroad. I'd be, you know, I'd be in Africa and I'd be to Dubai and I'd be to Iceland and I'd be, then I'd be to Spain. And I don't know if that still happens, does it? Do they still oh, get? They do indeed. A lot of the UK talent get booked all over Europe and further yeah. afield. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people still look at UK wrestling, British wrestling and British wrestlers as, you know, the cream of the crop. And uh, yeah, we're still wanted internationally as well. Yeah, there's been some great, I mean, there's some great guys here still, you know. I mean, I'm not mm. I'm not in touch, really, with, with it now, John, to be honest. You know, it's sort of, that's, I mean, I'm, you know, it was, I know I only finished six years ago, but I don't know. I know, like, people like Jodie Flesh and Johnny Storm, I, mm. you know, I, but the new people, you know, I've, I've really no contact with, but... Um, and, but I did say to Steve, next time he has a show at Halsham or near here, I'll go. And if James Mason runs a show, he runs a show sometimes in Eastbourne here with the Hippodrome. So uh, I, I will go along. But not that I know anybody, but it, I think Bamber was there last time. He was the only one I knew, um, Lee Bamber. Um, yeah. 
yeah, it's just good to watch it and, you know, get to be around around the boys. And But it, it's not the same. But then I'm biased, aren't I? You know, so. Well, this is it, because you grew up in what many would say is probably, you know, the very best period that British wrestling has ever seen. And, of course, we've had some peaks. And I know that, uh, dare I say, Brit Rest was very popular in the mid-2010s. Um, and caught the attention of you know the, the American promotions, but uh, when you're talking the golden era, yeah, everybody knows about the 1970s, the 1980s of British wrestling, and uh, that's the era that really sticks out as being the best for British wrestling for sure. Well, well I hope so, but you know, I, I don't yeah. want to disappoint you now. I mean, there's some great athletes that are around, you know, and I respect that, but um, because it was on television, yeah. Because it had a prime spot. I don't know if you know, I'll just tell you this little fact that actually one year when the cut, it was always on cut final day. And when Mick McManus fought Jackie Palo, I can't remember what it was probably late sixties. They had more viewers than the actual cut final. That's how popular it was in those days. So that's just.